Welcome to Kidney Essentials, a podcast for medical students, residents, and advanced practitioners at the University of Colorado and beyond. Let's start with some short introductions, especially since we have a guest podcast host today. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, Ruth? Thanks. I'm Ruth Campbell. I'm a second year fellow at University of Colorado and will be starting on faculty at Colorado next year. I have no conflicts of interest and I tweet at Ruth underscore E underscore Campbell. All right. Maybe you're going to be a regular. You better shine on here and we can have you come back. It's your budding faculty. Yeah. <laughs> and just to clarify, you said you're a fellow, you're a nephrology fellow. Oh, correct? that's right. Yes, I am a nephrology fellow. <laughs> Secret cardiology fellow coming up. <laughs> Sophie, you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Sophia Ambruso. I'm a assistant professor at the University of Colorado and at the Denver VA. I tweet at Sophia underscore kidney, and I have no conflicts of interest. I'm Sarah Young, and I am at the University of Colorado. I work out of our Anschutz campus, and I tweet at, at kidneycritic dot, no, dot nothing, at kidneycritic. So before we get into, this is our annual podcast on the articles or publications that have most changed our clinical practice in the past year. Before we get into that, just plea, I'm begging you to please review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us find new um, listeners. So if you have an opportunity, get on there. And if you have criticism, just text us and let us know um, what you <laughs> do or don't like, and we'll try to change it in our next podcast. Um, Sophie, can you tell us about our mission? So our mission is to make nephrology more accessible and less intimidating, provide concise nephrology pearls in each episode to help listeners understand renal pathophysiology, and to make nephrology sexy one episode at a time. Excellent. And our legal disclaimer is this podcast is for educational purposes only. The views and statements expressed are those of the podcast hosts only and are not a reflection of the opinions of our employers. All right. So again, as I said at the head start of this podcast, this is our annual podcast about articles or publications that have changed how we take care of patients. And so we're going to go ahead and get started with who did we decide was going to go first, Ruth or Sophie? Sophie, are you going to go first with your article? I am going to start with a salt substitute and stroke study. So it's our SAS study. And this was done by Bruce Neal et al., and it was in the New England Journal of Medicine, came out in September 2021. And basically what this was doing, it was a randomized study, and it was random, randomizing villages um, to either a regular salt or a salt substitute, which included 75% sodium chloride and 25% potassium chloride. And it was comparing the rates of stroke, um, major cardiovascular events, and death from any cause. Just a little bit of background. I mean, I think a lot of people know this already, but there's a lot of data that's basically about salt reduction and stroke reduction and blood pressure reduction. But what's really interesting is um, in the more recent years, what we've identified is that potassium is um, intimately involved in some of the more distal diuresis that occurs in the kidney. So the thought is that perhaps potassium and high potassium diets may have um, a much greater role in terms of potentially blood pressure management, but overall just risk reduction in some of our higher risk patients. What this was is it was a cluster randomized trial. And when I say cluster randomized trial, they took 600 villages in rural China 
And they literally took these villages and they randomized the village. And then each village got an intervention. And so they ultimately enrolled almost like 21,000 people. And it was from that many villages. And essentially what they did is they took the intervention group and they used this salt substitute. Like I said, it was 75% sodium chloride and 25% potassium chloride. And they told these people here and said, hey, you need to use this salt substitute, um, but you, want, you should use it exclusively, but use it less than regular salt. And then the control group was to continue to use the regular salt, which is 100% sodium chloride, and don't make any changes to what they typically do. So like I said, it was really cool how they were able to randomize these villages, and they followed them for over five years. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. I mean, what a great, I, I think that it was a really great way to, to mean, conduct a study. Can you imagine trying to do that in the U.S., though? You go up to Cleveland and be like, Cleveland, I want you to do potassium chloride instead of sodium chloride. And, 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 you know, that does sort of, that will, you know, bring into the problems, you know, with some of the limitations of the study. It's really hard to manage and direct exactly what people are doing. But by and large, you know, as I'll talk about just very briefly in the results, they did demonstrate uh, through some studies that there was more potassium um, consumed in that group. Um, the patient selection, um, they, it was basically adults who had a history of stroke or if they were 60 years and older. Or if they, um, and also if they had poorly controlled blood pressure. And then the first, the primary outcome was um, incidence of stroke. And then the second outcomes was one, our major cardiovascular event and or death of any cause. And then, of course, they were looking at, as you wouldn't be surprised, clinical hyperkalemia. But what's sort of the caveat about the clinical hyperkalemia is that labs couldn't be regularly checked in all of these people. You know, this was kind of a almost, almost like a pragmatic trial, right? Uh, so clinical hyperkalemia means that they presented to a hospital or there was a case of sudden death and they discovered that the patient had hyperkalemia. So from the results perspective, like I said, there were almost 21,000 participants um, recruited from the 600 villages. They basically divided those villages up 300 and 300, and there are about 10,500 in each group um, randomized to either the um, salt substitute with the potassium in it or the regular salt group. Interestingly, it was an older population. The mean age was 65. 73% had already had stroke. And what they found is in that salt substitute group, so again, 75% sodium chloride, 25% uh, potassium chloride, the sodium excretion was reduced and then the potassium excretion in the urine uh, was increased. So that was determined that at least enough of the people within these villages were following these recommendations that they were able to get a statistically different um, number to prove that there likely should be a difference. Interestingly, in the salt substitute group, the blood pressure really only decreased by at least the systolics by like 3.3 millimeters of mercury. So not tons. But what's more interesting is that our primary um, outcome, the salt substitution group, had a significantly lower rate of stroke compared to those in the salt group. And then also MACE, our, um, our major cardiovascular event, which we refer to as MACE, that was lower. And then it was also protective against all-cause mortality. And finally, there was no difference in the clinical hyperkalemia. Again, remember, this is not checking labs all the time, but clinical, meaning there was no difference in who presented to the hospital or who had sudden death and was identified to have hyperkalemia. 
So I think what's really interesting is that for a long time, we've focused on low salt diet and don't get me wrong, low salt diet is incredibly important for a lot of different reasons. But here, it was not the salt that reduced the risk, but it was a supplementation with the potassium substitute that was beneficial. And then um, despite the minimal differences in, in blood pressure reduction, you know, three millimeters of mercury, that's really not that much. What is it that this potassium is really offering from a stroke benefit? I think there's a lot of things that we have to talk about in terms of how this can be implemented in greater or widespread fashion. You know, in China, for example, just changing the salt substitute or salt, you know, to a salt substitute might be very beneficial in terms of high-risk patients. But how would this be implemented in, like, say, the United States? Are we going to change, you know, what is being put in or preserving our foods? I don't know. I think we have a large percentage of the population in our cohort that we deal with that may not benefit from this, or we don't know, you know, the risks or benefits because they have a harder time excreting their potassium. So how is this, how has this changed what you're counseling patients on in terms of diet? I would say for my patients who probably have a potassium less than 4.8, I am definitely, along with some of my other dietary recommendations and a low salt, I'm recommending, you know, DASH diet or, you know, increased fruits and vegetables, because I think by and large, from a risk reduction perspective, it's just as important as a low salt diet. Less preserved foods, more fresh fruits and veggies. Mm-hmm. Hard to do though, right? I mean, I, number one, I have a bunch of patients who have no interest in eating that type of food. I also have a bunch of patients who, uh, as with my veterans, a lot of them are very much stuck at home. They're not able to go shopping. They don't have the monetary means to go shopping and buy fresh fruits and vegetables. It's easier for them to get microwave dinners or meals that are delivered. Although we do have meals on wheels that are supposed to be, or what is it? Project, Project Angel. Angel yeah. Heart. Yeah, which, is which is fantastic, but it's gourmet food. And I've got a lot of veterans that don't like the gourmet food. It's too tasty. Yeah, I've, I've heard that too. It's a little too frou-frou for a lot of patients. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Sophie. All right, Ruth, what do you, what did you pick for this podcast? All right. So I picked um, the, I looked at the KDGO 2021 GN guideline update. I kind of focused specifically on membranous because I thought there were changes both to diagnostic approach and treatment. And it's sort of come up in my clinic um, just in terms of following patients with membranous nephropathy and kind of knowing where we're going in terms of um, treating and really focusing on um, the disease specifically. So as we know, membranous is, um, especially primary membranous nephropathy, is a really important cause of nephrotic syndrome in the U.S. Um, and since like about 2011, when this paper by Beck et al. came out, um, looking at the PLA2R receptor, there have been a lot of changes and advances in membranous nephropathy, um, and that led to a bunch of changes in the guidelines. Okay, so just because some of our audience is medical students, do you just want to elaborate PLA2Rs? PLA2R um, is essentially an antibody that was... Um, elucidated as being really prevalent in patients with primary membranous nephropathy. And what they found was that this antibody bound to the phospholipase A2 receptor antigen in the glomerular basement membrane um, and, or subepithelial space. And when the antibody bound to the antigen, it caused in situ immune complexes to form, which then led to membranous nephropathy developing. So this paper basically showed that not only is the antibody 
um, present in patients' blood who are who have primary mem membranous nephropathy, but it also correlates to disease activity. And so this is really important because it was present in 70% of patients with this disease and was highly, highly sensitive and specific, very specific for this disease. And so since the discovery of this antibody, they've been able to correlate it to biopsies and actually found that it almost like the confidence interval and specificity almost matches biopsies um, very, very closely. This led to some updates in how we diagnose primary membranous nephropathy. So, But can I just interrupt really quick? Basically, what you're saying is that if somebody's got a positive anti-PLA2R, essentially, we're, they're more or less saying that means that the membranous, they have membranous, and it's because of that, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And... Like I said, it only is in 70% of patients with primary membranous. So it's not, you know, if it's negative, it doesn't necessarily mean you don't have membranous nephropathy, but it was kind of a big finding. And so prior to these guidelines coming out, biopsies were essentially the gold standard and still are the gold standard for almost all glomerular disorders. But as of the 2021 updates, because of this high specificity with this antibody in the guidelines have changed such that um, you can actually diagnose primary membranous nephropathy if you have nephrotic syndrome and PLA2R antibody positivity. Biopsy, though, is still indicated if your PLA2R is negative or if your PLA2R is positive, but there's some concerning issues. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not saying that you don't ever do a biopsy, but um, it's just a really cool um, change that you can diagnose this based off of a serologic test. Yeah, super big deal. I mean, the fact that we can a larger percentage of our patients forego a biopsy because we've got a positive serologic test is huge. I mean, I think it's a great thing that we can do that. So it's exciting. Yeah. And I think what really has struck me is that it's led to us really tailoring our treatments in membranous instead of just sort of blasting with immunosuppressive treatments. We can kind of focus more on B-cells and um, B-cell depleting options like rituximab. So that kind of leads into how the management has changed. So previous guidelines, and so as a background, um, there in primary membranous nephropathy, there's a high rate of spontaneous remission. So 30% will undergo spontaneous remission. And so that's always something that hasn't really changed. That's always something that we should think about um, in our patients. So the 2012 guidelines essentially said that in relatively low to moderate risk patients, you could watch and wait them wait with like best supportive care, so max ACE and ARBs um, for six months. And if they weren't improving, then you would start immunosuppressive treatment with either cytoxin and steroids or calcineurin inhibitors like tacrolimus or cyclosporin. If they presented with kind of some high risk features like high amounts of protein, then you might consider actually treating them instead of watching and waiting, but that was kind of the recommendations. In the 2021 guidelines, they still recommend in low-risk patients watching and waiting with max supportive care, so ACEs and ARBs, but in your medium um, to high-risk patients or high to very high-risk patients, we start looking at different treatment options. And so and just to kind of define that, medium risk would be like if you have nephrotic range proteinuria that doesn't improve with ACE and ARB for six months, or 
in high-risk patients, they have nephrotic range proteinuria plus like high titer levels of anti-PLA2R and all, or other complications like low albumin levels. First-line treatments now for your medium risk um, are rituximab. In your high to very high risk, they still recommend cytoxan and steroids. And the big difference in the 2021 guidelines is that calcineurin inhibitors are no longer recommended as monotherapy. They should be um, added to rituximab. And the reason for that is not that calcineurin inhibitors weren't helpful. Um, they were. They had really good responses. But once you tapered off of calcineurin inhibitors, um, 50% of patients would relapse. So that was kind of the downfall to them. Do the guidelines talk about duration of therapy with rituxan? So rituxan is typically treated um, either you do one gram on day one and one gram on day 15, and then you follow up at six months. And then if you need to repeat the dose based on based on PLA2R levels or based on proteinuria, then you could repeat like two grams. Alternatively, um, some like Gemratux, that, that study did 375 megs per meter squared times four um, as their initial dose. So it um, the guidelines give you both options. Yeah, but they don't give you like, so for example, you know, with ankylosteritis, we usually treat and then we'll treat them for three to five years, like every six months. They don't recommend. They say just follow the antibody and redose as needed. If they have as needed, okay. Correct. Yeah, because if if you check at six months and the PLA two R is negative and their proteinuria has improved considerably or like they're in partial remission or complete remission, then you actually don't have to redose the rituximab, which is really important especially in the, in the face of us being in a COVID pandemic where rituximab dramatically increases your mortality if you get COVID, that we should not use it if we don't absolutely have to. Right. Totally. Yeah. And I have clinically, like I have some patients who have, you know, they got one dose five years ago or two, two grams, not five years ago, but like, you know, a, a period of time ago and have never needed any repeat dosing, which is really interesting. Yeah, and then the other thing I just wanted to clarify, so the, the PLA2R is on the actual podocyte. That's where the receptor is that the autoantibody forms. So the immune complex occurs in the basement membrane in that subepithelial space. Correct, yes. Yeah. And then there's one other, you know, less commonly, there's another antibody, the thrombospondin type 1 domain yep. containing 7A that accounts for dramatically smaller percentage of membranous. Right, like um, 10%, I think. Right. And that, yeah. and that one, I think you can actually test for serologically. Like, I think at Denver Health, we test for it, but you can't forego a biopsy if that's positive. But yeah. I do, I love the fact now that, you know, we can follow up and measure PLA to our antibodies after we've treated people to surveil them. Yeah. And again, I think that's also practice changing um, and very helpful uh, and, and, and can also guide additional treatment if necessary. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's why this stuck out to me is because some of my membranous patients who were diagnosed, you know, in 2016, you'll follow them in clinic every six months or so. And if their protein goes up, like the beauty is that they were PLA2R positive back in 2016. So you can recheck labs and see if that's related to a flare of their membranous or if they really like it's, if it's from something else. So 
yeah, exactly like you said, it's a wonderful test for following um, if they're having any sort of relapses or even if they're resistant to treatment, which happens. So in patients who, let's say they get rituximab or a calcineurin inhibitor and rituximab and they have persistent high-grade PLA2R positivity or or not necessarily high-grade, but let's say it's le- the levels of your titers don't change or persistent nephrotic syndrome at six months, then you might consider that they're resistant to um, treatment. And the guidelines give you different options for how to kind of modulate your therapy, um, how to add um, for these patients. And the outcome is that all roads sort of lead to cytoxan and steroids. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a bunch of other diseases I can think of. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) RPGN? Yeah. Let's just give cytoxan. See what happens. <laughs> but I, I think the resistant membranous kind of brings up an, an interesting, from sort of a, a theoretic or cerebral standpoint, which is the idea of epitope spread. Um, and that happens essentially when the antibody to the PLA2R receptor, so, so that antibody binds to a very specific portion of the PLA2R receptor. Um, and epitope spread is when your body kind of outsmarts you and starts binding to different portions of that receptor. Um, and these patients can be very hard to treat and may not even respond to cytoxan. So that's an interesting thing that has sort of shown up in membranous nephropathy. In, and, and clinically, what they sort of look like is you treat them with cytoxan or you treat them with rituximab and they continue to have PLA2R positivity and nephrotic syndrome. So, And then the last thing that I just wanted to touch on is that the PLA2R um, positivity has shown some important, um, just kind of changed a little bit of the guidelines for how you manage, how you get these patients ready for transplant um, to kind of look at whether or not they would recur um, post-transplant. So essentially the guidelines recommend like leading up to transplant evaluation, you measure the antibody levels in the bloodstream. And if they're positive, um, then they have a high rate of recurrence. It's about 50%. If it's negative, then they want you to look at a native biopsy um, and stain it for the PLA2R antigen. Um, Good luck at the University of Colorado. I know, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And same at Denver Health, honestly. So if that antigen is positive, but the serial, your serum antibodies are negative, then you actually have a low rate of recurrence. It's about 10% because it indicates their antibodies are gone. If your antibodies are negative and the antigen in the biopsy, the native biopsy is also negative, sort of a medium risk of recurrence, about 30%. And I don't entirely understand why that's a slightly higher risk, but, but it, it is interesting. I think it's just because they don't know what the cause is. It, you know, we don't have a confirmed anti-PLA2R. Um, so it just means that not being able to identify that the antibodies have disappeared and perhaps there's still something else that is circulating um, that's contributing to it, then that would increase the risk of occurrence. Yeah. Oh, that's a great point. There's a lot of great um, advances in membranous. And I think, you know, I've kind of mentioned this, but I have a few patients who I've just sort of gotten the chance to follow their PLA2Rs and their, um, and it's been very helpful. And I think in the future for membranous, you know, we're looking at other monoclonal antibodies. I think obentuzumab is being looked at. There's a clinical trial that's recruiting right now for that. 
so comparing that to, I think, a CNI um, in terms of treating primary membranous. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to me. This is a disease that has just completely changed in the time that I've been a nephrologist, right? I mean, we had no idea what caused membranous when I first started practicing nephrology, and now um, we do. And, you know, not having to re-biopsy these people every time they have proteinuria and stuff is huge. I have one patient I follow who, you know, we just check his anti-PLA2s and we, he and I just hold our breath, you know, while we wait for it to come back. And when it's negative, he and I are, feel great. And then we wait a little longer and we check it again. Yeah. And he, he's had this so long. He was treated with, before my time, with Ponticelli regimen. And then, then he, I inherited him and we've been using Rituxan and he's done really, really well. So. Yeah. That's it's awesome. Nice. It's, it's clean. It's elegant. It's really great. It's my favorite yeah. nephrosis. All right. (laughs) I don't know if I like hearing that as someone who treats a lot of lupus. We'll 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 change your opinion of that when you come to lupus clinic. (laughs) Um. All right. Anything else you want to add, Ruth or Sophie, about membranous? No, I don't think so. All right. Well, I picked a much more mundane, mundane study. Nothing so fancy. So I picked the chlorothaladone for hypertension in advanced chronic kidney disease, um, which was published in the New England Journal in December of last year. And um, I'm just going to present a clinical case. And I think everyone will um, probably has had somebody like this in their, um, in their nephrology clinic. So a 65-year-old diabetic male with hypertension, coronary disease, and a creatinine of three with a GFR between 21 and 25. He's on maximum dose ACE inhibitors, amlodipine, Corig, and hydralazine, and um, he has been on Lasix um, twice a day. His blood pressure is 150 over 90, and his pulse is 60, and he has one plus edema. His urine albumin to creatinine ratio is 500, and when I calculated in clinic his kidney failure risk equation, and just for those of you, we've mentioned that before in the pod, but it is... Um, you can Google it and it'll bring you to a calculator and it basically, you can put in your patient's clinical information and it will calculate their risk of needing dialysis in the next two years and five years. And when I did that for this patient, his risk in two years was 19.9% and his risk in five years was 49.99%. Why I didn't round up to 50 for the podcast, I have no idea, but it's 49.99. And I'm always sort of, you know, struck with what more can I do to slow the progression of this patient's CKD and reduce his cardiovascular risk. Obviously, he's a little low for an SGL2 inhibitor because he's already down to 21. And so that's why I liked this study because it sort of gives us a cheap once-a-day drug that may help a patient like this, which we have um, several of every day in our clinic. And so the question they really asked was, what is the therapeutic benefit of chlorothalidone on blood pressure and albuminuria? So it was a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial of chlorothalidone, chlorothalidone in patients with CKD stage 4 and poorly controlled hypertension. Now, they were poorly controlled. They were not terribly controlled. They took out anyone who was terribly controlled. And the blood pressures were um, confirmed by 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitors, and they were given chlorothalidone 12.5 milligrams a day and titrated every four weeks to a maximum of 50 milligrams a day versus placebo. Have any of you ever used 50 milligrams of chlorothalidone ever? No. <laughs> I, think, I think the highest I've ever gotten up to is 37.5. I don't think I've ever gotten that high. And then they looked, the primary outcome was changed in 24-hour ambulatory systolic blood pressure. 
from baseline to 12 weeks. And their secondary outcome that they looked at that I was interested in was specifically their albuminuria. So patients were recruited from the Indiana University uh, Hospital and the Richard L. Rudebush VA Medical Center. I don't think I pronounced that correctly. And a hospital called Eskenazi Hospital. And so their hypothesis was, and I'm just going to read it, we hypothesized that among patients with advanced chronic kidney disease and uncontrolled hypertension, chlorothaladone would decrease the 24-hour ambulatory systolic blood pressure. We also hypothesized that chlorothaladone reduced the degree of albuminuria over 12 weeks and provide preliminary evidence that chlorothaladone is renoproductive and cardioprotective. You know, this is they're seeking to put to bed this dang rumor that's been going on for a long time that thiazides are not effective in decreased GFR. Exactly. I, I can certainly say, like, as a fellow, that was still dogma. And then, you know, there'd be a, an attending here or there. They would say, oh, that's not true. Um, but I still think it sort of permeated throughout fellowship, and it, it has permeated also into, you know, the trainees and residency. They also have very similar thoughts, and everybody reaches for oh, a loop. It's permeated into EPIC. If you write for a thiazide at a low GFR, you will get an EPIC warning that tells you it's not recommended at that lower. So, yeah. So you brought up the importance of this clinical, you know, this clinical question that they were addressing because, you know, there's little evidence regarding the effectiveness of thiazides in this patient population, but there's all this belief that they're not effective. However, chlorothaladone is the preferred primary agent for essential hypertension and has a lot of data to support its benefit for cardiovascular morbidity and mortality. And so, and especially with the no KDGO. Um, guidelines of getting patients' blood pressures to less than 120 over 80, which is extremely ambitious. It's very hard to do that with our current drug regimens. So I think it was a really important and simple question that needed to be answered. So their methods were, um, you know, pretty simple. They took stage four CKD, uncontrolled hypertension. They did ambulatory blood pressure monitors. They gave them, I love this, they didn't take anyone off their loop. So if they had a loop, they just added the chlorothaladone on top of it. They also switched them all to torsamide. Yes. They standardized all their drugs. So they were all on either lisinopril, losartan, amlodipine, atenolol, or torsamide. They also had this really cool two-week run-in placebo, which I thought was very good um, to sort of get, get rid of the placebo effect. And then they were randomly assigned to chlorothaladone versus placebo. And... They did not increase the dose if patients became orthostatic, hypercalcemic, or had gout, but they didn't stop it. Okay, so, um, and then they looked at 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure and proteinuria, and not surprisingly, they found an improvement. Well, actually, I guess it's, I guess we didn't really know, but they found a dramatic improvement in systolic blood pressure by 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitor of 10 points which is huge. If you could put someone on something and drop their blood pressure by 10 points, that's pretty significant. And they saw a 50% decrease in their albuminuria. And what's interesting is a lot of that albuminuria benefit persisted for almost two weeks after they stopped the drug, as did some of the hypertension benefit. And that's unclear about why, whether that was simply because the half-life of chlorothaladone is so long. It's like, it's like 30 or something, 50 to 50 hours, something like that. So what I like about this CLIC trial, as it's often referred to, is it's extremely relevant to clinical practice. Aside from the male predominance, 
the characteristics of the patient were very similar to my CKD clinic. I would just caution that hyponatremia with a thiazide is more common in women, and they did not see a lot of that in this study. And I think some of that might be because it was mostly men. I thought it was a good trial because it was randomized, it was blinded, they had intention to treat analysis. The two, the two groups were similar to known prognostic factors, and the follow-up was complete. And the other interesting thing about it was most of the benefit in the blood pressure and the albuminuria occurred in the first four weeks on just 12.5 milligrams of chlorthalidone. So you don't really have to get up to 50 to see the benefit. And um, when I heard the author speak, um, he was saying he would have even liked to have started with 6.25 because it's such a potent drug. And then I would say the limitations are really that the trial size is really too small to know about the long-term cardiorenal benefits. But what I can tell you is all the fellows and the residents who have rounded with me since this was published have learned that pretty much when I say, so what do you want to do for the blood pressure? The correct answer is chlorthalidone. <laughs> and just as an example, theoretically, like if you took my patient that I presented and you took their KFRE. And if you put them on chlorthalidone and you dropped their urine albumin to, to creatinine ratio from 500 to 250, you drop their kidney failure risk equation percent from 20 to 14 at two years and from 50 at five years to 40, you know, just by the reduction in their albuminuria. And that's not even the potential benefit you might reach from decreasing their blood pressure. So while the cardiovascular benefit still has to be proven, I'm... I really like this drug now. And everyone can afford it. Yeah, that's a great thing about chlorothaladone. I mean, it's, it is incredibly affordable. I, I, I do like what you're bringing up too, also about the dose. I mean, really, it is a powerful drug. And perhaps, and even until this, I was like reaching for 12 and a half as my go-to. And I think, um, you know, trying to start out with a small enough dose, it, because I mean, even the author talks about later on, like they were trying to up titrate them to a hundred and they're like, we, I, we found out that that's like way too high of a dose. Way too high. Yeah. Um, and, and that not much is necessarily needed. That's exciting, particularly in this, you know, population with advanced CKD. Yeah. The other thing I've done, I mean, I don't use, I never was a big metolazone user anyway, but I really don't use it anymore. And it, one of the things, so I have a couple of lupus patients with bad proteinuria and difficult to control hypertension, and I've kept them on their loops and put just on 12.5 every other day of their thiazide, and I've had really good success with that. So because the half-life is so long, you can actually dose it every other day. Interesting. Yeah, I, I had the same of when I heard the author speak about his like very low dose, I kind of freaked out and went and changed some patients dosing really quickly. <laughs> oh God. I will say now I use a lot of chlorothaladone. I did have someone get profoundly hyponatremic on me. And weirdly, she had actually been on hydrochlorothiazide and I had switched her from hydrochlorothiazide to chlorothaladone. But again, she was a woman and she was five feet and, you know, gender and size are predictors of hyponatremia on a thiazide. So I think that was I'm never going to use it again in a five-foot person, five person <laughs> after that experience. When you start them, do you ever, like in the outpatient setting, do you have like regular time at which you'll check labs, like in a couple of weeks, just to like make sure yeah, oh, their yeah. electrolytes are okay? Or Yeah. So I, I 
I check everyone um, the next week or within the next few days. So if I, and I'm often starting people on a Friday because that's when my lupus clinic is. So they'll usually get a lab by Wednesday. And actually this one who got really hyponatremic on me, um, we caught it. She was completely asymptomatic, but we caught it because we just had routine labs. Yeah. All right. Anything, any additional comments or things we want to talk about? We went very long. This is 45 minutes, guys. This is a long podcast for us. Uh, <laughs> it's because we got Ruth with us. We, we just wanted to stay on as long as we could. All right. So to wrap up, thank you to all of our listeners for listening to us. Um, we hope you learned a little bit about what we think changed in the care of nephrology patients in the past year. Thank you to Sophie in advance for editing this. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, to the University of Colorado Division of Nephrology for giving uh, Ruth her job for next year and Sophie and I our jobs this year. And I have to say the VA because the university doesn't pay me. The VA pays me. <laughs> <laughs> Good. The VA too. All right. And we will plan on trying to get... I don't. What's our next topic going to be, Sophie? I don't know. I've been tossing around like a urea case, not, not a, excuse me, a, um, uh, <laughs> there goes my brain. <laughs> um, an azotemia versus uremia case. Okay. I'm looking know. forward to that. We'll find any ideas, Ruth, you're, you're more than welcome to write a, write one for us and we'll be happy to do it. <laughs> I'll have to dig through and see. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. All right, you guys, that All was right. fun.